You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Good morning. I'm Amy Morris. And I'm Karen Moscow. Here are the stories we're following today. First, let's bring you the latest developments on the war in the Middle East. Israel has widened its ground offensive in Gaza, pressing ahead with what it has called the second phase of its war against Hamas. We get the latest now from Bloomberg's Oliver Crook in Tel Aviv. Over the weekend, we had sort of that step up in terms of ground activity within Gaza in the fourth week of this conflict, and now a new chapter in it, it seems like, and that's really how it was described by the prime minister. Remember, there had been sort of puncture holes and sort of slight incursions um, in the lead up to this, but this was really the biggest step up in terms of ground troops and tanks going into Gaza, but still falls short critically of the full-scale invasion that many people had envisioned um, and, and, and how this battle was going to go. Bloomberg's Oliver Crook in Tel Aviv reports Israel has struck more than 600 militant targets in Gaza in recent days. Well, Amy, the military escalation comes as Israel's prime minister faces criticism over his unwillingness to accept any responsibility for the October 7th attack. Benjamin Netanyahu caused controversy with a social media post where he pointed the finger at intelligence chiefs for the security lapse. He later deleted the post and apologized. Netanyahu, speaking through an interpreter, addressed the nation. Our hero troops, they have one supreme main goal to completely defeat the murderous enemy and to guarantee our existence in this country. We've always said never again, never again is now. And those comments come as Netanyahu spoke by phone with President Biden to discuss developments in Gaza. A Russian airport in a majority Muslim region has been temporarily shut down after a mob forced its way onto the tarmac where, according to reports, a plane from Israel had landed. It took hours to restore order. The Russian Air Transport Agency says the airport will reopen tomorrow after initially saying the regional hub may be closed for a week. Well, Amy, back here in the U.S., House Speaker Mike Johnson said he expects the Republican-led chamber to pass an Israel aid bill this week, and he spoke to Fox News. We passed the resolution, as you noted, in, in, uh, in strong support of our strong ally and great friend Israel. We had to do that. And then I flew last night to Las Vegas and spoke to the Republican Jewish Coalition, as you noted, uh, to, to send a further signal that this is an, a priority for our country. We cannot allow the brutality and the just unspeakable evil that is, that is happening against Israel right now to continue. We're going to stand with our friends. And Speaker Johnson added that he believes an Israel-only bill will also receive bipartisan support in the Senate. 
And let's get you up to date on a couple of high-profile court cases. First, Donald Trump lost his latest attempt to delay the partial gag order on him in his January 6th trial. Bloomberg's Ed Baxter with that story. The partial gag order bars him from publicly criticizing prosecutors, potential witnesses, and court staff. U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin's ruling will immediately go into effect unless a higher court intervenes. Trump attorneys are expected to ask a federal appeals court to immediately step in. The order was paused as a judge allowed further arguments. Prosecutors argue for a tighter gag, as they say a post regarding former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, who flipped last week, would have violated the order if it were in effect. Ed Baxter, Bloomberg Radio. All right, Ed, thanks. In other trial news, FTX co-founder Sam Bankman-Fried returns to the stand today. He'll likely face a bruising cross-examination from prosecutors after his Friday testimony where he admitted to mistakes but said he didn't commit fraud. The case against Bankman-Fried centers on allegedly fraudulent transfers of billions in FTX customer funds to an affiliated hedge fund, Alameda Research, in which he held a 90% interest. Turning to the markets, futures are higher as we begin a new trading week. S&P 500 entered a technical correction on Friday with the benchmark closing 10 percent below a recent peak. Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson says investors hoping for a boost to stocks by the end of the year will be disappointed. Wilson says profit expectations are too high for the fourth quarter and next year. Malami, the direction of the equity market may be determined in part by some key events on the economic calendar. We get a preview from Bloomberg's Michael McKee. House prices and consumer confidence lead the way tomorrow before a big Wednesday. ADP employment jolts job openings and ISM manufacturing. Thursday, we get productivity and jobless claims. And Friday brings everyone's favorite indicator, the October jobs report. Normally, that might be the big event of the week. But two Wednesday events will overshadow it. The Fed always gets huge attention, even though nobody on Wall Street thinks they'll do anything this week. And Treasury's refunding announcement, how much they'll borrow of what bonds this quarter. Debts are so high, it could be a major market-moving event. Michael McKee, Bloomberg Radio. All right. Thank you, Mike. In Europe, shares of HSBC are down a quarter of a percent. Profit missed estimates, but the bank did announce a fresh buyback program. We spoke with CEO Noel Quinn. Very pleased with the $3 billion uh, buyback that we've announced today, up to $3 billion. That takes it to $7 billion for the full year. Um, and I'm also pleased that we've announced another $0.10 cents dividend. HSBC Chief Executive Noel Quinn suggested there may be more buybacks to come. Well, Amy, there's more labor problems at one of the big automakers. Workers at Stellantis' Canadian plants went on strike after failing to reach a new contract by a Sunday night deadline. Unifor, which represents Canadian auto workers, says the strike involves more than 8,200 members. It gives the automaker a new labor headache just days after it settled a long walkout with the United Auto Workers in the U.S. And again, futures are on the rise this morning. Straight ahead, we have more global headlines plus a check of sports. And this is Bloomberg. Thank you, Karen. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making news in New York and around the world. And for that, we're joined by Bloomberg's Michael Barr. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Amy. More protests were held over the weekend across New York City over the Middle East crisis. Yesterday in Queens, a rally was held by the Bangladeshi community in Ozone Park. On Saturday, demonstrators in Manhattan marched with Palestinian flags. Viva, viva, 
Hundreds gathered for Brooklyn United for Israel rally demanding the release of hostages held by Hamas. A huge rally was also held inside Grand Central Terminal organized by the group Jewish Voice for Peace. Demonstrations were also held in Newark. An autopsy has been performed on Matthew Perry, but it could be weeks before we know what caused the star's untimely death. Perry was found over the weekend in his hot tub at his Los Angeles home. In New York City, fans have been showing up in the rain to pay their respects at the site of the famous Friends apartment building in the West Village at the corner of Bedford and Grove Streets. A little bit sad. Uh, tears were coming. I, yeah, we were thinking about uh, him. He was very funny. Matthew Perry was 54. A Long Island man was arrested after police say he allegedly pointed a gun at a six-year-old boy after the child mistakenly went to the wrong house. Michael Wynn was arraigned yesterday and charged with menacing and endangering the welfare of a child. Authorities say that the mother was driving her three kids and her nephew to a house in Manhasset when they apparently dropped off a Halloween goodie bag at the wrong address. Police say Wynn allegedly opened the door and pointed a gun at the boy's head. Attention is now being turned to missed warning signs in last week's massacre in Lewiston, Maine that killed 18 people. Police say the suspected gunman, Robert Card, was found dead from an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. John Cohen, a former DHS official, told ABC Card fits the profile of a mass shooter. This is an individual who was troubled, that he was exhibiting behaviors that uh, were noticed by family members, uh, people he worked with, people in the military, yet he was still able to uh, get a gun and he was still able to fall through the cracks in the system and commit a mass shooting. Meanwhile, more than a thousand people gathered for a Sunday evening vigil to remember those killed and wounded in Lewiston. Global News, 24 hours a day and whenever you want it with Bloomberg News Now. I'm Michael Barr. This is Bloomberg, Amy. All right. Thank you, Michael. And we do bring you news throughout the day here on Bloomberg Radio. But now get the latest news on demand whenever you want it. Subscribe to Bloomberg News Now to get the latest headlines at the click of a button. Get informed on your schedule. You can listen and subscribe to Bloomberg News Now on the Bloomberg Business app, Bloomberg.com, plus Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Time now for the Sports Report, brought to you by Tri-State Audi. For that, we bring in John Stashauer. Thanks, Amy. The Jet-Giant game was expected to be low-scoring. Both teams have a stout defense and an anemic offense, but no one could have expected 24 punts, a collective 4 for 34 on third down of the Giants to have negative 9 passing yards. Despite that, the Giants towards the end were said to have a win probability of 99%. They led by 3, going for a field goal. Zach Wilson of the Jets had had only one good offensive play all day, but everything changed in the last 28 seconds of regulation. The 35-yarder by the normally reliable Graham Gano was missed. Wilson suddenly had consecutive 29-yard completions. Greg Zerline's field goal Sent the game to overtime where the Giants' Dory Jackson was called for a 30-yard pass interference, and the Jets kicked again. A snap clean, the placement down, the kick is up, and the kick hooks to the left, but it's gone! Inside the left upright for Zerline, and the Jets win it in overtime, and honestly, I'm not sure how! It was head shaking. ESPN New York to call. Jets won 13-10. They've won three in a row. The Giants are two and six and may have to play next week with rookie QB Tommy DeVito. Daniel Jones' replacement Tyrod Taylor left in the first half with injured ribs. Big upset in Denver. Broncos beat the Chiefs first time in 17 meetings, 24-9. 49ers were 5-0. They've lost their last three, beaten by Cincinnati. 
John's Dash Hour, Bloomberg Sports. Amy. All right. Thank you, John. The Bloomberg Sports Report was brought to you by Audi. Don't let someone else drive off in the Audi model you've always wanted. Visit your local Tri-State Audi dealer to get behind the wheel of yours today or visit AudiOffers.com for more information. Just ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak, the very latest from Tel Aviv when we talk with Bloomberg's Ross Matheson. And we'll hear from a senior advisor to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. You're listening to Bloomberg Daybreak. Futures are higher. From coast to coast, from New York to San Francisco, Boston to Washington, D.C., nationwide on Sirius XM, the Bloomberg Business App, and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak. Good morning. I'm Amy Morris. Israel has widened its ground offensive in Gaza, pressing ahead with what it is calling the second phase of its war against Hamas. We are joined now by Bloomberg's Roz Matheson. And Roz, Israel calls this the second phase, but what does that involve? Well, what we know, it just does involve an expanded operation on the ground inside Gaza, more troops, more tanks going in while they continue their aerial bombardment. But what's interesting in this is that it's not the full-throated ground war that we perhaps were expecting a week or two ago. We know Israel had massed hundreds of thousands of soldiers near the border with Gaza, an awful lot of equipment in the area. And so far, they haven't sent in that kind of number of troops, and they're doing more targeted operations on the ground. That it is an escalation from what we had a few days ago. And the warning from the Israeli uh, officials and the military is that this, is, this could take many, many weeks, if not months, in terms of their operation on the ground. Meanwhile, in all of that, we're seeing even greater evidence that the humanitarian situation for those inside Gaza is deteriorating further. Now, this is not the full-scale invasion, as you just explained. And it is more measured, more targeted. So is Israel maybe backing off of the idea of that full-scale invasion? Well, it certainly is a, a more significant operation on the ground than it was, as I said, a couple of days ago. They said they struck more than 600 targets in Gaza in recent days. That includes weapons, depots and missile sites and so on. Uh, it's talked about saying that it's taken out quite a number of Hamas fighters. It's also <clears throat> conducting raids in the West Bank and clashing with militants there. So it's not a small-scale military operation, but it's not the level that perhaps we expected. Um, they are still uh, maintaining that their ultimate goal is to decimate Hamas and make sure that an attack uh, that happened on October 7 can never happen again. And let's look at the risk of this expanding. The Biden administration preparing for the possibility of the war expanding across <laughs> the Middle East. Uh, what are some of the signals that we have seen that this is actually starting to bleed over? Well, so far, we are seeing Iran, for example, make those threats that it could open up multiple fronts in the region. We're still seeing some attacks coming from uh, outfits, proxy outfits for Iran in places like Syria. Uh, we're seeing Hezbollah still engage uh, in firefights with Israeli forces from the north. But we haven't seen a real step up in that activity. We're not seeing Hezbollah, you know, utilize the full force of, of its machinery. It's got some very high, highly sophisticated missiles, for example. So we're seeing a lot of threats at the moment that it could still bleed into a broader conflict. Um, and that remains a high concern for all. But so far, we're not seeing real evidence that that's starting to happen. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, as you know, has been facing criticism and a lot of pressure over his unwillingness to accept any responsibility for that attack back in October. Is there a risk that Israel may find itself more isolated as it goes further? 
Well, we are seeing that idea of a unity government in Israel already potentially start to fray. As you mentioned, uh, the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu tweeted in the middle of the night saying that the security forces were responsible for the lapses that allowed the October 7 attack. He then had to retract that tweet and apologise um, against a wall of criticism inside Israel. Um, so perhaps questions about ongoing political unity inside Israel, but outside Israel also you are seeing those very significant expressions of concern coming from Europe, the US and elsewhere, and also Arab nations in the region about uh, the state of life inside Gaza for people who were there and concerns about the humanitarian situation. So you, you are sort of still seeing that wave of support from the US and Europe for Israel in the aftermath of the attack, but as time goes on, that is being eroded somewhat about concerns about the level of the catastrophe inside Gaza. All right. Bloomberg's Roz Matheson with the latest in Israel. Thank you so much for that. And as that war enters its second phase, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu apologizing, as Roz just explained, for that social media post in which he failed to accept responsibility for the terrorist attack on October 7th. Now, earlier today, our Caroline Hapker spoke with Mark Regev, senior advisor to Netanyahu, about that social media post and other aspects of the war. They talked about long-term goals for security and peace, humanitarian aid for for Gaza, U.S. support. Let's go to part of that discussion. We haven't released any information yet, but what I heard last night was so far we've been doing well. Uh, and that's important for us, obviously. But our goal is, of course, to, to take on Hamas, to destroy its military machine, and to remove it from power there on the Gaza Strip. We refuse in Israel to return to a situation where we've got this terrorist enclave on our southern border that at will will, will will attack us, at will will send rockets into Israel to target our cities, at will will send its killers into our country to massacre our people. We won't stand for that anymore. We will take on Hamas. We will destroy its capabilities to hurt us. What efforts are being made to negotiate the release of hostages now as the ground offensive has widened in the last couple of days? Do you expect any more hostages to be released by Hamas? Well, first of all, I don't expect Hamas to suddenly uh, change. They're not going to become uh, humanitarians, yes? They're, they're a brutal terrorist organization, and we saw vividly the sort of violence they're capable of, the brutal violence that they're capable of, uh, when they attacked Israel on October 7th. Uh, so we have no illusions about Hamas. We think we'll get our hostages out by ratcheting up the pressure on Hamas, the military pressure, the diplomatic pressure on its allies. We think that's the best way to get our people home. And of course, as our operation continues and as our operation expands, the efforts to get the hostages released will, will continue. You are close to Benjamin Netanyahu as his advisor, of course, and you're in the room at many of the important um, moments and meetings. Benjamin Netanyahu over the weekend issued this very rare apology for a tweet in which he blamed Israel's security forces and intelligence for failing to anticipate the Hamas attack on the 7th of October. How much pressure is Netanyahu under now to resign? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not aware of any pressure for him to resign. Uh, I would say this. Yes, it's clear there were failures on the Israeli side. Uh, they took us by surprise on uh, uh, October 7th. Uh, uh, we didn't have an intelligence warning. That's, that's clear. When they crossed our border, they butchered our people. And Israelis want to know how this happened. Now, obviously, the prime minister is at the top and he has overall responsibility. But it's clear that when this is over, we're going to have to look at all the lessons learned. 
and have a thorough investigation of what happened where everyone in all positions of authority will be held accountable. Iran's foreign minister has been speaking to Bloomberg. He spoke to us on Friday. He said that if the United States continues what it has been doing so far, in other words, support for Israel, then, quote, new fronts would be opened up against the United States. How much of a concern are comments like that to you? I think it's exactly the opposite. The fact that the United States has sent its uh, two aircraft carrier groups to the Middle East, the fact that the United States has warned the Iranians, don't use Gaza as, a, as an excuse to try to start something new, I think that's going to keep the peace. Our policy is victory in the South, and we will win, uh, victory over Hamas in the Gaza Strip, and to deter any possible uh, offensive from Hezbollah or Iran in the North. And as has been reported, Israel has been fighting back, uh, hitting targets when we've been attacked by Hezbollah and even from Syria last night. But we don't want a larger escalation in the north, uh, but we are ready. The US, though, has said that Israel and its military should be taking every possible means available to them to distinguish between Hamas, which the US calls terrorists who are legitimate military targets in their words, distinguish between Hamas and civilians who are not, i.e. not targets. Is Israel doing that? Israel has also promised significantly more humanitarian aid. What is the realistic time frame for when that happens? So we accept that. Uh, we want to attack and destroy Hamas, and we want to make every maximum, every effort possible to keep civilians out of the crossfire between the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, and the Hamas terrorists. And uh, that's why we've been calling upon, urging Gaza and civilians to leave combat zones, specifically in the north where we know there's going to be heavy fighting. We want to get them out of harm's way. At the same time, it must be said that Hamas is doing everything possible to, in, to tell people not to leave, that they have to be martyrs for Hamas's crazy extremist cause. And they've actually put up roadblocks to physically prevent people from, from leaving areas of combat, from going south. What do you say to the UN call and, and many other countries who are calling for a ceasefire, that actually more bloodshed is not the way to bring about peace after so many other wars? What do you say to them? Well, if they can tell me another way to dismantle Hamas's military machine, I'm very glad to hear it. But at the moment, there is no other way. And those who call for a ceasefire uh, in the current situation, it might sound good. And I understand why people might you know, think, oh, that's a wonderful idea. Let's stop shooting. But that basically just returns us to October 7th at 6 in the morning, where Israel has this terrorist enclave on our southern border uh, uh, run by Hamas, uh, uh, which is like ISIS on steroids. We, we saw the violence they were capable of. We saw the brutality. We saw the rapes and the murders and burning people alive and, and the massacres. Uh, uh, we refuse. People have to understand Israel refuses to return to that situation. What is the post-war plan for Gaza exactly? So, so we don't want to have, you know, to stay there forever, but we will. We will stay there as long as we need to, to destroy Hamas's military machine. And that is the goal of this operation. And so it would mean Israeli forces in Gaza for an indefinite period of time? I wouldn't put it that way, but uh, as long as the military operations are necessary to uh, destroy Hamas's military machine. Once again, we have no intention of staying there. We have no desire to rule the Gaza Strip in any sort of permanent way. That was Mark Rejev, senior advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, speaking with our Caroline Hefker. Listen back to that entire conversation on the Bloomberg Talks podcast. Download that program wherever you get your podcasts.
You're listening to Bloomberg Daybreak Today, your morning brief on the stories making news from Wall Street to Washington and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed at 6 a.m. Eastern each morning on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning starting at 5 a.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg 1130 in New York, Bloomberg 991 in Washington, Bloomberg 1061 in Boston, and Bloomberg 960 in San Francisco. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Plus, listen coast to coast on the Bloomberg Business app, Sirius XM Channel 119, the iHeartRadio app, and on Bloomberg.com. I'm Amy Morris. And I'm Karen Moscow. Join us again tomorrow morning for all the news you need to start your day right here on Bloomberg Daybreak. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.